Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Lisa here. I just want to thank you for supporting my podcast and being a loyal listener. I am so grateful to you. To show my gratitude, I am now offering 15% off at my online store. Visit me at lisacongdon.com to shop colorful archival art prints, stationery, desk accessories, home goods, and more, all at 15% off with code PODCAST15 at checkout. That's right. Get 15% off of all of our products at lisacongdon.com with code podcast15 at checkout. Link to the shop in the show notes. Friends, I am super happy today to share my conversation with Timothy Goodman. Timothy is a designer illustrator, muralist, and author. His art and words have covered walls, buildings, packaging, shoes, clothing, books, magazine covers, and galleries all over the world for brands like Nike, Apple, Google, MoMA, Netflix, Tiffany, Samsung, Uniqlo, Target, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. He's the author of Sharpie Art Workshop, and the co-creator of several social experiments, including the viral blog and book, 40 Days of Dating, and 12 Kinds of Kindness. His first solo gallery exhibition, I'm Too Young to Not Set My Life on Fire, was on view in Manhattan in 2021. Timothy's work often discusses topics such as mental health, race, politics, heartbreak, and love. He teaches at SVA, speaks around the world at creative conferences, and lives in New York City. Tim's most recent book, a graphic memoir titled, I Always Think It's Forever, is a love story in two parts, and really, in the end, is more, in my opinion, about learning to love yourself and your own journey of healing than it is a love story for another person. His memoir reflects all the things he is known for, humor, humility, and ultimately real vulnerability. I'm a huge admirer of Tim's work, but also what he stands for and how he uses his platform. His work and Instagram posts are deeply vulnerable, and he constantly speaks out on critical issues and invites others into conversations. I'm so excited to share our conversation about vulnerability and what Tim's own journey into the vulnerability vortex has looked like not only as a cisgender man raised on toxic masculinity, but also as someone who has a large following and is an artist in the public eye. Let's welcome Tim to the show. Tim, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. It is no secret that I am a huge admirer of not only your work, but also 
what you stand for and how you use your platform. Your work and your posts are deeply vulnerable. You consistently speak out on issues that are important and you invite others into the conversation in a way that to me is really humble and generous. You have just published a new graphic memoir called, I always think it's forever, which is about a love story that has two parts and really in the end is more, in my opinion, about learning to love yourself and your own journey of healing than it is a love story about the woman you met at the beginning of the memoir. And we'll we'll talk more about that in a second. And your memoir reflects all the things you're known for, humor, humility, even your graphic design. Like it's it's definitely a graphic memoir and ultimately real vulnerability. And I'm really excited to talk to you about the topic of vulnerability and what your own journey into the vulnerability vortex has looked like, not only as a cisgender man, but also as someone who has a large following and is an artist in the public eye. So before we get into that, I ask all my guests to go as far back as you want to go and tell us the story of how you came to do what you do today or what you're known for. What led you to do the work you do now as an artist? Wow, what a big question. I know, sorry. <laughs> First of all, I just want to say, like, it's such an honor to be here. Obviously, like, the respect and admiration is completely 100% back at you. Following you for so many years, so happy to, like, know you and be friends of friends and be in, like, you know, it means a lot to me. I'm, I'm actually, like, I've done a lot of these over the years, of course, and for this book. But I'm like kind of nervous to talk to you. Like you, you're like you're like the you know I don't know. You mean a lot. You, you mean a lot, and it's great. So thank you. Yeah. To answer your larger than life question to begin, uh, you know, it began as for I mean for me, it's about growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. You know, that's where I was born and raised. I've lived in New York City for 19 years at this point, but so much of like who I am in so many different ways all stems from being a Midwesterner and growing up in Cleveland and, you know, the good and the bad, like growing up, you know, we didn't, I grew up in a rough neighborhood. We didn't have a lot of money. I grew up in a very, you know, I was very socialized as a young boy to, you know, I didn't grow up without a father, all my male, you know, I was constantly searching for male influences and male figures. And those people came out in forms of rap and rock stars and people who called women hoes and bitches and all these things. And so like so much of like, you know, so many of us cishead men in this country, in this world, like that's how we're kind of like socialized and we think about things. And it comes from this very kind of like macho place But growing up around a lot of women, my grandmother being an artist, her having a huge influence on me as a young adult, you know, I think that ultimately that played into a lot of like how I see the world and how I kind of, you know, think about my privilege in this world. But, you know, I grew up um, as a teenager, you know, I really kind of rebelled against my grandmother and, you know, her being an artist, all the things I was doing when I was like seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I kind of gave that up and I was like into sports and I got, you know, really heavily (laughs) into marijuana and drugs when I was a teenager, you know, and skipping class all the time. And, you know, we used to, my graphic design career started when, when basically I was like 15, 16 years old in high school, we would basically remake the tardy slips to make 
exact <laughs> replicas of my school. We would find the fonts, we'd get the right kind of paper from, from, you know, and we would like match it, Microsoft Word, and then we would forge the signatures of my teachers identically. It was amazing. Like we would, anything we could to like get away with shit as much as possible. That's what, <laughs> that's kind of like what my <laughs> high school career was based on. I had a 1.7 GPA and I, at the time I thought that was kind of cool. It wasn't until I graduated high school, barely graduated high school after being suspended a million times. And like, there was all these conflicts that, you know, all my friends went away to school and I started having to really look in the mirror. I started painting houses when I was 17, 18 years old. And, you know, it took me a while still to like find out what my place was in this world. I was still you know, heavily into doing all kinds of different drugs every weekend. I was getting arrested for stupid shit. And then, you know, by the time I was like 21, I started taking community college classes in Cleveland, Ohio. Shout out Tri-C, Cuyahoga Community College. Changed my life. Yeah, so I don't know. That was a long-winded answer, but it's kind of like all of that really plays into like who I am now. Yeah. And then you take those graphic design skills and you're like, now you're on the internet and like a graphic design world celebrity. And like, how did that all happen for you? Well, uh, (laughs) you know, I think in a lot of ways it started, let's see, it's 2023, 11, 12 years ago, I started working for myself. You know, I graduated, I went to SVA, And uh, I moved here, you know, without any money, trying to find scholarships, taking out loans, you know, doing the whole bit, trying to figure it out. And I was determined to really try to make it here because for me, if I didn't, I had to go back home to Cleveland and paint houses. You know, that's what I was doing for, for years. And there was a lot of honor in that for me, you know, and I still to this day, you know, I do murals now, you connect the dots, it's like the physicality of the work that I was doing in my late teens or early 20s, I still do now in a different way. But I'm on site working with painters. You know, I'm I'm on site before, you know, if I'm doing something on a commercial gig before the place opens and I'm working with contractors and painters and, you know, and I feel like I'm at home, you know, because that's like what, what it was about for me. And there's a lot of accomplishment in that kind of physicality, in that hard work, you know, in your body, that I really cherish in a lot of ways. And it brings me back to that. And so basically I would say I did my first mural in 2010 while I still had a full-time job and I was working at Apple out in San Francisco, out in Cupertino. I lived in San Francisco. I moved there for one year, which was still very early in my career. It was about three years out of school. I took that job and I did my first mural for the Ace Hotel here in New York city. I locked myself in this bedroom for three days and drew all these picture frames of things that I wanted to pass to the common tourists. It was really a concept of like, you know, a great place to get a burger, or like, a, you know, milkshake or good museums. It was like an editorial kind of mural. And I did it in paint markers just because it just felt like the easiest thing to do. Like I just, I'm an impatient person. And I, I really believe that a lot of artists, you have to tap into your like behaviors and that let that drive your creativity. And for me, I have no interest in like laboring over something. Like it can never be an oil painter or something like that. You know, like I want to like get in, get done and like 
go watch the Knicks tonight or something, you know, like or, go in, get done and get out. Yeah. yeah. And like <laughs> go eat dinner with my girlfriend. And, you know, like, I don't, I, it's, I don't know. There's something about, I'm just an impatient person that way. So paint markers at the time was just like, okay, I guess this is like the easiest way to get this concept out, not really having some grand plan. But I walked out of that hotel room, you know, and uh, I remember walking down the street and it, I mean, and this took everything out of me over the course of this weekend. It was like Memorial Day weekend. I locked myself in this room for three days, something that would now take me about five or six hours to do. It took me three days. And I remember like I never felt more stimulated. And I think that's what I'm always trying to go after as a creative person in so many ways. You know, how do I find meaning in what I'm doing? And, and, and if it can bring meaning to others, that's just as important, of course. But I never felt more stimulated, like physically, emotionally, like almost spiritually, like doing it. And I think, you know, again, it goes back to like me painting houses and all that. So it was like I found this this moment of like, oh, I could I could do mural, like, you know, like and, you know, in 2010, murals are become a bigger thing now, too. And especially in like the graphic design space, it, it felt like I hadn't seen a lot of that from graphic designers at that moment. So. You know, I just asked myself a question at that point that I'm still asking myself a question. The feeling I have right now, how do I make, how do I find this feeling for the rest of my life as a creative person? And it was then that I decided that this felt special and I want to try to promote the hell out of this mural as much as possible. And, you know, try to get on design blogs and like email every single person I've ever met. You know, like this is 2010, you know, just as like, social media was like, you know, it was a little prehistoric at that time still. But yeah, so like that was this defining moment for me. A year later, I quit Apple and I started working for myself. And then, of course, in 2013, I, I mean, Jessica Walsh, my great friend, she and I did 40 Days of Dating, a social experiment that I think, you know, really put my name into a lot of people's, you know, eyes that probably had never heard of me at that point. So that was... but. Like anything, it's just a gradual, you know, there's these moments that have continued to happen. I still feel like, you know, I'm I'm just like the kid from Cleveland. Like, I just did a Nike shoe with Kevin Durant, and, uh, you know, more people are finding out who I am. Like, it's this constant, like, I, I never feel like any, you know, I never kind of, sit, like, rest on my bridges in any way in these ways. You know, it's just, yeah. You don't ever feel like, oh, I've arrived. No, not at all. Yeah. Nor, I really reject that whole, like, celebrity thing just because you know at this point uh, yeah i don't know like i've met real celebrities you know like we're not celebrities like we're just <laughs> like it's a nice, it's a funny thing but it's well it's... maybe in the lettering and illustration world we are but i think it's just like people always are interested in the stories of people who have made a name for themselves in whatever career path they've chosen and that's just i love that story because it was really about your sort of like falling in love with doing something, realizing that you could potentially do it for a living, and then being really dogged about getting it out into the world. Yeah, which is, as you know, it's just so important. It is. As much, you know, for me, it's so much of like, the making is so important, but then sharing it and getting it out in the world is just equally as important because I'm still like constantly knocking on people's doors, sending emails, writing DMs, like saying, Hey, I'm alive. This is kind of work I'm doing. I would love to work with you. You know, like, yeah. And I, I really always encourage all artists and designers and illustrators at no matter what stage you're at to constantly do that, you know? 
Let's dive into your memoir a little bit. So let's first give a little context for it. So it's a few years ago and you've been working like a dog as a designer and you had a really tough year and struggled with depression and you decide to go to Paris for a year to take a break. So you say in the book, I came to Paris to free myself from what I knew so I could see myself more clearly. And I just love that so much. And pretty quickly, however, you get there and you meet a French girl and you fall for each other pretty quickly. So my first question is, what was that awareness like for you when you had gone on a journey halfway around the world to get to know yourself and then you immediately get consumed in a relationship? Like, was there some cognitive dissonance for you? Like, Mm. what am I doing? Or were you just so smitten with her that you kind of abandoned your primary goal? Mm. Oh, I don't see it like that at all, actually. I think that there was never a rule that I couldn't get into a relationship, you know, and these things can exist at the same time. I wanted, listen, I was going to Paris because I had a really horrible 2018. I had really gone through a bout of depression that I had never felt in in my life, you know, full of a lot of suicide ideation and therapy and medication and really trying to come to grips with so many things that I had been struggling with for so long. And so I really vowed to myself to like, go after these things I was always putting off. You know, I didn't have money when I was in college to do a study abroad program. So I said, what would it look like to, you know, I always wanted to go to Paris and be an artist. Like, I could do that potentially. Like, what would it mean? You know, it's very like, e pray, love, but it was, it was real. And I was like, I could, you know, figure this out and I could like plan and I could do this. And I have nothing holding me back. And I've always wanted to learn French, attempt to learn French. And I can try, you know, and I'm going to go for this shit. I'm not going to, you know, it's not about my career at this point. It's not about, you know, this facade that I'm trying to keep up with. I'm going to grow my hair out. I'm going to have a birthday party. You know, these things I'd never really done, you know, and like it, it was big and small. It was macro and micro in so many ways. And so I was going to Paris with like, you know, ready to clock in, just like I'm here you know, I'm ready for work, whatever that means. If it's falling in love, if it's, you know, I was just going to go after it unapologetically at the risk of of heartbreak of anything, you know, it was really about just showing up for my life. And so I happened to meet someone that I, you know, had an incredible time with. And so much of that was, I wouldn't change the thing, you know, it was a part of the whole journey. So you weren't necessarily going looking for falling in love, but you were really going to live fully in whatever way that, you know, because I think a lot of times people go on these journeys and they're like, I'm just going to focus on myself. And if that had happened for you, I'm sure it would have been great. Yeah. But you happened to meet this person pretty quickly and it was all part of the journey for you. Yeah, exactly. So tell us a little bit about, I don't want to give away too much because I want people to buy your book and read it because it's really beautiful to look at. And also there's so much more nuance and detail than we could ever cover here. But you go, you meet this person, you have this sort of like magical experience and then you get called back Mm -hmm. or right to New York or do you have work or something? Yes. I went back to New York. So you go back to New York and the long distance of it all, it just like fizzles, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And you realize this, so you go meet her in Rome. And then that's basically when the second half of the memoir starts. Yes. 
And, you know, she's like, I can't do this. So tell us a little bit about what happened then for you. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of fell apart long distance wise. It's a very difficult thing. Long distance is hard no matter what, but when you're talking about thousands of miles and six hours, seven hours apart, time difference, you know, it's like, it was difficult in a lot of ways and we tried. You know, I always say like, we loved each other enough, but not enough to make it work, you know? And it's like, we met in Rome, we tried to kind of have this like, we didn't talk about it in this way, but it very much was, you know, this idea of like, Let's meet. I don't know something about like meeting in European cities and and trying to make love happen. I don't know, but it was like let's meet in Rome and try to have this incredible New Year's together. And within thirty six hours, the whole thing fell apart, and she flew back to Paris. And you know, I I love this saying like ripe fruit falls quickly, and I think for me that's where I was at. For her, it wasn't, and that's okay. But what I had, to, the whole part of the second book is really about dealing with the way I've had, you know, how I constantly kind of like have these abandonment issues in a breakup and my attachment disorder and really trying to wrestle with, oh, this is happening again. I'm feeling, I'm going through the same things again. Like your dad left when you were a kid. Yeah. And then having a, you know, a really horrible kind of relationship with my first stepfather and you know all these kind of like and see when you like for me growing up in a broken home seeing you know not having my biological father around always wondering where he was and then having a stepfather you know who was pretty awful and seeing he and my mom constantly fight constantly not showing love or affection or having real love or communication in the house constantly hurting each other you know, you, you start to associate love with, you know, with these horrible things. And you start to think that, well, you know, you, you, you never want to open up your heart. You never want to kind of like, you, you associate love or a relationship as a shortcoming filled with inevitable like heartbreak and pain. And so, so I was constantly either choosing people who are wrong for me because it was just a self kind of like premonition, or I was kind of like going after things that, or I would just, you know, maybe I would have someone great and that would push them away, you know? So it was these constant kind of like behaviors and these cycles. And so, so much of the second part of the book is really wrestling with that and coming to grips with it. Things that I knew, but really trying to like face it head on, having difficult conversations with my mom about the abuse I felt I had as a kid, things I'd never talked to her about in my life, you know? taking medication for the first time, you know, and constant therapy, which I've been in for many years. But, you know, all of this is a, as a, as a way to be more proactive uh, and show up for myself in a much bigger way than I could have ever really had thought I could, you know, so. I love that. And so it wasn't like you went to Paris, you experienced this heartbreak, and then you started therapy and you were like, okay, now I am going to heal this part of myself. You actually had started this work long before. So tell us a little bit about when this desire to work on yourself began. You say in the book, I want to inspire men to admit they need help. Yeah. And so when you left for Paris, you were already seeing a therapist. Yeah, yeah. And being more open was a goal, something to practice. When and how before Paris ever even happened, did that work begin for you? Like what was the catalyst and what caused you to admit that you needed help? Yeah. 
Well, it goes to show you, right? Healing is never linear. You know, even when you you feel like you've arrived at some sort of level, life can throw a lot at you and put you back on your ass. And so, you know, it's good to to remember that and and to partake in that. You know, so much about this all this too is for me is about this idea of like loneliness. Like I really try to honor I, I feel existentially lonely a lot. Uh, no matter what is kind of like happening in my life, you know, quote unquote, good or the bad, feeling lonely is, is a real like moment for me to kind of feel raw and human. And I think that that is special and sacred in, the, in a lot of ways, mm. uh, especially as a creative person doing the kind of work that I do. And I like to write a lot. And so I don't know. Yeah, the journey has, I, you know, I've seen the same therapist on and off for 15 years you know, he is like, I always say he's like my Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. I fucking love this man to death. And you guys text and like he... Yeah. I just, I think, I mean, I knew a little bit about your relationship with your therapist just through your social media. But when I read the book, I just found it so heartwarming. I had one therapist in my life who I saw for several years when I was also in a sort of like existential crisis and suicidal ideation and all of that. And she, I had a similar relationship with her. I was really broke at the time and she would like lend me money, which is totally antithetical to like anything a therapist is supposed to do. But she was really just like, I got a hug every time. Me too. We hug every time. And I just like, it sort of reminded me of this like really profound relationship that I had with this person who really changed my life. You don't see this person anymore? No, I like quit therapy and then I moved to Portland and uh, okay. I think she doesn't even practice anymore. This was when I was in my 30s. Anyway, so how did you find this therapist and like what was the catalyst for like getting into therapy in the first place for you? He, um, he, he, used, to, um, he used to do pro bono therapy at my school at SVA. Mm. And so <laughs> that's how I first met him when I was in college, when I wasn't, you know, and then he was kind of like early on in my career when I wasn't making any money and he would kind of just like, he would charge me. He would just say, what What can you afford? Like, what, whatever makes sense for you. Like, don't worry about me. And he was really... So somewhere in college, you were like, I want to deal with some of this stuff. Oh, yeah. I felt... I've always felt really kind of like this loneliness and how it really pertains to relationships. And I think I started seeing him during a breakup in college. Mm. And you know, already trying to think about why do these things really like cut me deep? Why can't, why does it take me so long to get over someone? Why does it like, why, why am I like so kind of crippled by this, you know? And so it started then, of course. And, you know, and I was always thinking about what my masculinity quote unquote meant, you know, and like why I was, con I always felt like on one hand I could be like very, you know, stereotypical. And then on the other hand, I would really feel connected to uh, the feminine side of myself or really connect to women and women in the arts and, you know, wanting to learn more about their stories and how I had this dichotomy that I felt like I was always wrestling with. And I think that part of that was also like asking for help, you know? And I think admitting to myself that you know, it's okay not to be okay and that I can 
you know, feel like this and I can, you know, honor this and, and be proactive about my mental health. So, but then it's, you know, it's this constant kind of like push and pull for many, many years, I think in my, in my twenties. You write in the book, my therapist repeatedly tells me that I am lovable and worthy of love because he knows that every time I hear this line, it still feels like the first time I've ever heard it. Say more about that. It's funny, I just put that on a wall, on a gate, on a, on a, <laughs> a mural on the street that he walks by and he's always very proud. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think when you're, when you kind of like, you need to hear that reassurance I need, I need a word, I'm a words of affirmation person. And I think it may- Like that's your love language. Yeah, it's my number one love language for sure. You know, I feel, I'm a, uh, what is my, me and my girlfriend, Tina, we're in couples therapy, it's lovely. And he says that I'm a relational processor and she is a um, internal processor. Mm. And so I like, I really need that kind of like affirmation through words, through verbal communication, it's really important to me. So, I, and I need, it's similar, it's why I need to like get my work out. It's why I feel like I'm really a, uh, I don't know, I'm a, an expressionist, you know, like no matter what the form, it could be writing, it could be drawing, it could be a social experiment. I need to get it out, you know, I need to get whatever the hell is going on inside out and I want to connect to people through these things. I want to have difficult conversations about topics. I want to challenge people. I want to challenge myself. I want to learn. I want to unlearn. I want to, you know, it's like, it's just very important for me. And I feel very blessed and privileged that I even have any sort of outlet for that. I feel lucky as fuck, really. So I don't know. I, I'm running <laughs> off on a rampant, but <laughs> it's okay. I just don't take any of this for granted, you know. Like I used to haul buckets of wallpaper glue upstairs for 16 hours a day, you know, like with all these guys in my late teen, and like I just thought that was it. And like I still think about that every day, you know. You know Ben Sean is the painter from. Oh yeah. Oh, what, what's his book called? Oh, this one book. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, content. The shape of content. Yeah. Uh, I have to read that again. But he said something like, "There's." I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, "Every time I put my brush on a canvas, every time I make a stroke, like everybody I've ever been in my life is there. The person, and for me, it's like the little boy growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, and the person who you know was a house painter, and the person who likes this and likes that, and the per you know it's like all these versions of myself go in to everything I do, and I have to. I, don't, I think that's a really beautiful way of thinking about you know the art we we all create. Yeah, I think Cheryl Strayed has a has a similar sort of quote that's about like you know, everything that's ever happened to you. And again, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like everything that's ever happened to you, everything you've been ashamed of, every horrible thing, it's all part of who you've become, right? And like, that you are not like this singular moment, you are, you know, like your beauty and richness is about all of the horrible and beautiful stuff that's ever happened to you. And in fact, a lot of the horrible stuff is actually the beautiful stuff. And you, you say in the book that you used to think it was a curse to feel so deeply and now you know it's the biggest blessing. And I I feel very similarly because I made a similar sort of transition. And I just say more about that, like just understanding that pain and suffering is actually a blessing. Yeah, because, you know, I really... It's a big mind shift. Yeah. <laughs> I, for me, I connect more deeply with who I am as a human because of it. It brings me a lot more empathy 
for myself, for other people, for this world at large, with all the horrible things that are constantly happening, it makes me feel alive in so many ways, you know? And it makes me think about, I've been thinking a lot about this word service, you know, how I can be at service for people, for my community here in New York, for, you know, other artists, for myself. And I think all of that kind of plays into, you know, really finally being happy with how deeply I feel things. And is that, was that part of what you learned in this sort of like post Paris love affair? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, actually this isn't a curse. Like actually feeling things deeply just makes me more human. Yeah. And I'm, and this is who I am. I'm going to stop rejecting this person. This is who I am. And I'm going to let everybody know that. And anyone who comes in my life, that's what it is. I would expect the same from you. And that... I have permission to ask for that, you know, for the space for that. And I, I hope more people feel that way about who they are and the things that they feel. My liberation is tied to yours in so many ways. Mm. You are in a relationship again. And I wonder what maybe you've learned some things that you're applying to your life now, or maybe it's just what you just said, like approaching the relationship differently, like and how being in union with another human being has changed for you this time around. Mm-hmm. Not that it's, you know, a perfect relationship. No relationship is perfect. But yeah. say a little bit more about entering into a new relationship and how you sort of have approached all of it that's different for you now. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. I think it's like going in with the mindset of like, this is who I am and showing that card not trying to play some other character, which I think so many of us do in relationships, especially early on, you know? Yeah. And from the beginning, Tina and I were very much, this is who we are. The good, the bad, the ugly, like, you know, let's grow and learn together like this in a more authentic way, in a sincere way. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's the number one thing for me. You know, even the fact that we go to couples therapy together and there's not even major problems, It's like we just want to, it feels so healthy and special to continue to understand each other in deeper ways and to have real communication about our needs and who we are as independent people and who we are as together. And I'm sure you know all of this, but, uh, (laughs) you know, and I was available for love, you know, it's like I was, I think because of this whole experience and this, you know, my relationship now wouldn't have happened without this book. I mean, you know, without the story in the book. Mm. And so, yeah, and she's, Mm. yeah, she's incredible about it all. Like, I couldn't ask for, you know, the fact that I've written this book, like, the whole time we've known each other, like, I mean, she likes to give me shit, of course. Like, it's, you know, that's, of course, you know, but it's. Well, say more about how you decided to turn this into a book. Like, how did that all transpire for you? The pandemic? There's the pandemic there. (laughs) A lot of time to um, sit with things. Yeah, I think it it was about a year, it was about a year after the breakup, six months after the story in the book ends. I, yeah, I started thinking about like, wow, I have all, and I'd already written all these, like all these journals when I was in Paris. I kept a journal for the first time in many years and I'd written all these poems about our relationship and I was just like, I, I felt like it was just unfinished business for me. You know, like it just felt like, oh, this is, there's really something here that I want to like 
made me kind of dive deeper in and I felt healed finally. So it wasn't like you felt the healing and then were like, I need to write about the healing. It was more like the book helped you to heal or was it both? I think it was both. I felt like I could only get into the book because I was healed, Mm. but it also like helped me. Something just didn't feel finished for me. It wasn't about healing necessarily. Maybe it was. I mean, it, it probably was because I did cry the minute I sent the first PDF draft into my editor. And once I like really did the whole book and the art and everything, I cried and I was just like, I just had like, there was so much in there. And so I guess, yeah, I guess maybe I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious about this idea that you were just talking about earlier, this like showing up, knowing yourself and who you are and all your messiness and all of this baggage that you carry, all of that, and and really showing up in relationships like this is who I am and I'm not going to try to be somebody else and I know I'm not perfect and all of those things. And I'm curious, like how the people around you in your life reacted to that. You obviously have a, a solid romantic relationship now, but you obviously had friends and family and all these other people who were already in your life when you were more sort of hiding that or trying to be somebody else. And I'm curious if you had to step away from any relationships or, or have you like had any friends for whom that was like your vulnerability and rawness was too much for them? Or have you been pretty lucky? <laughs> I've been pretty, I, I think I've been pretty lucky. I've always been very vulnerable in a, in a, um, kind of a, uh, interpersonal relationship. I think sometimes I have friends who, listen, I I mean, to be real, I think at this point, I don't have a lot of straight, cishet white friends anymore. When I think about it, so many of my friends are just, they just don't fit into that identity. I still have a couple, of course. uh, And I still have like acquaintances that I'm friendly with and stuff, but I don't like hang with like a lot of people who are, you know, kind of, of my tribe. So. And say, say more about that. Like, and I'm assuming that's not just random. I'm not choosing. I'm not, it's not random, but I'm not choosing. I'm not like, it's just what I'm drawn to. Like, I'm just, right. I've always had a lot of friends who are women. I've always had a lot of gay friends. I've always had a lot of friends. You know, I grew up in an all black neighborhood and I still have friends from the neighborhood. So my, you know, so many of my friends, I have a lot of, you know, black and brown friends. And so I don't know. I just don't, the like, and I can't, if there's something I can't, I don't know, because I am who I am. I think it's just, I don't connect with a lot of like other straight cis white men. Like it's just, it's just not something that always I find myself, I don't know. So I guess there's probably something there about that. You know, it's by, I think maybe it's the way I am so vulnerable online, you know, so, and so how often I do talk about, you know, social issues and politics and how I'm, you know, pretty unapologetic about it. I think maybe that probably plays into it, of course. I don't know. Yeah. It's like you're putting yourself out there in a way that sort of naturally filters the (laughs) like-minded or, you know, yeah. People into your life or people who can accept you for who you are. Do you still keep a journal? I do sometimes. It's not something I'm like, uh, it's not a ritual. I still like have to like write, like I just vomit things out sometimes, very much so. But it's not like I don't like, I'm not like a 
I wake up in Paris. I was doing that. It was the first time I'd really done that since for a very long time. I feel like some of the most poignant parts of the book are these journal entries and just sort of how you talk to yourself. And you can kind of see that change over the course of the book that you're, you become much more forgiving of yourself and proud of yourself as in your journal entries, as the book evolves. And it becomes more about your own, like, sort of process of digesting everything that's happening to you in a way that's loving to yourself. I love this idea of there being no such thing as being fearless. <laughs> it's something people say to me all the time. You're fearless. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. are you kidding me? I am terrified. I just do shit anyway. And clearly you are also. I was scared to talk to you today. <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> fine. I was nervous too, but I always get nervous before I re- record podcasts. But it's interesting because I like to say, I've often said that, you know, like successful creative folks are not necessarily any more fearless than anybody else. It's just that, and whatever, you know, however you define success, but Mm -hmm. it's more that like, there is this sort of subset of people who are terrified of the creative process because it is really terrifying often and just sort of like show up for it and do it anyway. Not that they, you know, don't have fear. So, you know, and the same goes for pain and hurt, right? Like the goal is not to not feel pain or hurt anymore. The goal is to allow the pain and hurt to not control you. And you talk about that. Yeah. Like just like allowing those things. And, you know, I think about how, especially for men, even for women in our culture, this idea of, you know, being fearless or denying that you have pain or hurt is so profound and mm-hmm. like you, as a boy you were conditioned of course yeah. to not care and like we we call that like toxic masculinity and it's really this thing that you've named and that you're working against and i actually have a female friend who is in her late 50s and just went through a breakup and realized that she made a huge mistake and that she had been kind of closed off to this person Mm. and is going through for the first time in her life, like really feeling things deeply. That's if anybody can hear that's milkshake, my dog barking (laughs) in the background, the male lady must be here anyway. And just so raw. And so like, it's such a beautiful thing to witness because it's like, Sometimes going through a breakup is this thing that causes you to realize how shut down you've been to your own emotions or how you've kept people at arm's length until they're like, okay, bye. And then you're like, oh, crap. And so something has woken up in her and like she's a cisgender female who has sort of like always, you know, kind of like kept romantic relationships under control because, you know, she's afraid of her own feelings and she's really in her feelings now. And it's so amazing to witness. And I'm like, what a blessing that is for her. Yes. And like, no matter what happens with her, with, you know, this woman that she was in a relationship with and who broke up with her, like if they get back together again is not the point. The point is that she's like recognizing how much she hasn't allowed herself to feel for so long. And it's just like every day she cries and she's just, and I'm just like, this is such a beautiful thing. I love it so much for her and where it's going to lead her. I hope she's making a really dope Spotify playlist. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I recommend a great heartbreak playlist. You got to make it. Exactly. So I think that was like a huge message in your book, like pain and fear and 
hurt are not the enemy. Yeah. They're actually your friends. So say more about that. Like And loneliness, you know? That's and loneliness, yeah. Like make friends. Loneliness is profound. Make friends with them all. Yeah. I think, you know. I mean, as much as you can. Obviously there's so many layers to this. You know, obviously the grief is different. There's so many forms of it because it's like losing a loved one versus, you know, a romantic heartbreak. I mean, there's there's so many layers to it all, but it's you have to make friends with it. You have to, you know, try to get in front of it and not block it out. It's not going to go blocking out isn't going to do anything. It's always going to be there. You know, and I think so much of like the depression I went through thousand eight was me suppressing things for so many years. You know, it took me years of therapy to understand that like, oh, all the like quote unquote success, because I always put that in quotes because it's it means so much or so little in so many ways. But all the like success I had had in my life up until, you know, a couple of years ago, it was like, oh, it was all a reaction to, you know, me trying to prove people wrong from back home, you know, because I was this horrible high school student and I was this dead end kid who was going nowhere and no one thought I would ever be anything, you know, and I wanted to prove all these people wrong. And it's like, it's such a profound thing to realize, to kind of confront that so many years later saying, everything I've done is in reaction to that? Like, what about me? Like, what do I want? Why am I doing these things? Like, what am I in this for? You know, and it's beautiful because it's like, it makes me kind of like reevaluate. And I think that that can only be a a great thing. Right, and then also, it's like, I remember when I went through a really profound kind of awakening when I was in my 30s, I, was like following a breakup because similar to you, I had always reacted really, really strongly to rejection Mm. and had some, you know, emotional distance from my parents that, you know, really impacted me. And so I remember like thinking for the first time, like I actually, you know, these things are just circumstances in my life. And if I can look at them as opportunities to get to know myself better and to grow and learn and improve my relationships rather than a victim of bad luck or, you know, woe is me, like I keep meeting people who reject me. Well, why is that? Like, I'm going to take responsibility for that. And there's a real agency in befriending your emotions because you're no longer blaming yourself or other people. It's just... Feelings are just feelings, and yeah. it's c- kind of what you do with them that is important. You just made me think. I talk a lot about Bell Hooks in the book, mm-hmm. her book All About Love. I, always, I can never stop reading it. But she says something I'm paraphrasing, but like most of us prefer to be in a bad relationship than to like have no partner at all because it's like we're more interested in just finding someone than in actually knowing what love is. Mm-hmm. And that always really sticks with me. And I think that, you know, for as much as I was like punching in the time clock, going to Paris, ready to show up, I actually was in so many ways just looking. I was just kind of wanting a partner. I wanted like anyone who kind of fit that rather than like actually knowing what not just love in a romantic relationship, but love for myself meant. And I think so many of us lack that in so many ways. And I'm going to, you know, it's a constant question for me. Yeah, I was watching this. I was watching. Yeah, I was watching this movie on a plane recently. The Color of Money, a Martin Scorsese movie from the 1980s with Paul Newman. <laughs> it's like a pool movie. Have you ever seen this? If I have, I don't remember. It's yeah. like Tom Cruise and Paul Newman. It's such a random movie. I don't know. I think he won an Oscar for it, Paul Newman. 
he was hot. He was like six in his sixties. He was just like <laughs> Paul Newman. Like he oh, yeah. was incredible. Um, he's on the phone with his girlfriend at one point. He's in Atlantic City and he's like cleaning house. He's like winning the pool tournament. He's like in the finals, and he's killing everybody. Like easy peasy. And he's on the phone with his girlfriend. He's like, I got no grief down here. Like, can you come? Can you come? She was like in another city. Like I don't know. He was like, can you fly down here and give me some grief? And I don't know. I just, I just love that line because it's just like I think that we need something to push up against us in some ways, you know, in a bigger way. Like something to constantly kind of like challenge and inspire us to evolve and rethink and redirect our, our place and our work and our love and our life. Like I just think it's like I just love that chaos versus support. Thing of like finding yourself in the middle of it all. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense, but well, that's why relationships are so important. I mean, they give us comfort and companionship and connection, which is all great, but they also are mirrors, right? And they force us to work on things that we can ignore if we spend time by ourselves. And I don't just mean romantic relationship. I mean, friendships too, yeah. you know? Well, loving these people in our life, they have direct access to our traumas, our pains, our triggers. So of course it's gonna bring out so much shit. And that is difficult and we don't wanna feel that, but I think in order to grow, in order to be a more self-actualized version of ourselves, it's important to to show up for that, you know? And yeah. that's all, you know, that's all I'm trying to do. So one last question for you, and it's totally related to sort of what we were just talking about, which is, you know, this idea that like there's always more work to be done. So what are you working on right now in your life? I'm interested right now in really being present for myself, mm. for my family, my partner, you know, really just like trying to be present for it all and making time. Mm. And I think, you know, my word of the year is service. And uh, I want to like, you know, and constantly making time professionally, creatively as well. Like, it's really important for me to constantly, you know, work with pro bono organizations here in New York and kids and students and to, you know, just like be a part of community. It's really important for me. And so that's always like, constantly on my mind when I'm making decisions nowadays. And I just want to keep leaning into that as much as possible. So, well, you give back so much to the world and like so much of it is, yeah, it's acts of service and like your social justice work and your deep empathy for others is, is so clear. But I also think you give back just in being yourself and in like sharing your story. So I really appreciate that you've written it down now. And I'm going to link to your, by the time this comes out, your book will be published and out in the world. And I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes so people can check it out. And also your Instagram, if people don't know who you are, so they can follow you. But I just appreciate you so much. And I, I appreciate you so much. Thank and you so much. I appreciate you <laughs> taking the time to talk to me today. So No, it means everything to me. You're a legend. You're just like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Like, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. 
You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone. <laughs>